City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. We all love weddings. Most of us love weddings. I know I do. I got to go to a wedding last night. It was a lot of fun to go to a wedding where I didn't have any responsibilities. I can't remember the last time where I got to just go to a wedding and be a guest. I didn't have to pray for anything. I didn't have to do the ceremony. I wasn't in charge or responsible of anything. I got to go and sit and enjoy and eat hors d'oeuvres and have zero stress, and it was wonderful. Every time you go to a wedding, there's always a chance that something's going to happen. Something that we have seen, uh, if you've been to more than a wedding or two, which is inevitably somebody tries to steal the spotlight. It doesn't happen at every wedding, but it happens more often than we like to admit. I can think of so many times, you know, being a minister, I get to go to a lot of weddings. And I've seen things. I, I was at a wedding one time, and the father of the bride gave a 17-minute toast. (laughs) The toast was almost as long as the marriage ceremony itself. Less than halfway through it, the band, there was a live band, tried to play him off, Oscar style, and he turned around and swore at them and told them, you won't get paid if you try to do that again. I have been at a wedding where the photographer availed himself too much of the open bar. (laughs) And it became a show. We've all been to weddings where perhaps a bridesmaid has an absolute breakdown in the middle of the reception. Sort of as we look at all of these things, we sort of know that those moments are cringy. Right? Like, like we know that those are just odd moments. And they're eye-rolling. And when they happen, you're just like, uh, why are you doing this? And whether it's those examples that I gave or other ones, we've all experienced those cringy, eye-rolling moments at weddings. It kind of begs the question, why are people like this? Why are people... Why do people assume that it's a great idea that you're going to give a 17-minute toast, including every boyfriend your daughter has ever had in the toast? Why is that important? Or maybe the better question is, why is it that it seems like some people really, really, really want to be the center of attention? What's underneath that? Think of what's underneath that, whether it's at a wedding, at a party, in a church, at a school, wherever it's at, I think that what's underneath that is a desire for affirmation, a desire for recognition, a desire for, well, for lack of a better word, glory. And it's easy for us to sort of throw rocks at those people. I know most of you, I know that most of you have never, most of you have never done the super cringy, eye-rolly thing at weddings, right? Most of you have been on your best behavior at those sort of things. And so it's easy for us, the uh, non-inebriated photographers, to sort of sit back in our high seat and sort of look at all of those people and be like, yeah, those people are total attention seekers, (laughs) What's wrong with those people out there? But what's interesting is that same impulse 
that exist in those people exist in us too. It's just most of us have learned how to socially cover for it a little bit better. We've learned how to channel it into things that are probably equally cringy, but our society has said, no, that's okay. It's totally okay to seek your own glory in this way. It's cringy if you do it that way. And this is true of us whether we're an introvert or an extrovert. We have found socially acceptable ways to seek our own glory. And in reality, what we've really been able to do is is we want to build our kingdom. We want to we want to secure power for ourselves. We want to bask in our own glory. Again, we do this subtly. We don't do this like the bridesmaid having to break down at her sister's wedding. But all of us have this impulse to want to build my kingdom, to want to secure my power, and want to bask in my glory. Which is interesting because that's precisely the opposite of the way that Jesus ends the Lord's Prayer. So what I want to do is I want to read um, a passage from First Chronicles and a passage from Revelation. And as we do that, I'd ask that you would stand as we think through the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. First from First Chronicles 29. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above it all. Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. City Church, this is the Word of God written years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. See, while on the one hand, we are trying to secure our own kingdom, our own power, and our own glory, the Lord's Prayer turns our attention quickly and directly off of that. The Lord's Prayer comes at us in a way that reminds us that this life is not about our kingdoms. This life is not about the power that we can have, and this life is not about the glory that we can secure. You see, that impulse that drives people to be awful at weddings is just an exaggerated version of the same thing that is in us. And it is in us in ways that we can't imagine. It is like a weed that has wrapped itself around our soul. That whenever anything happens, we try to turn that thing inward and back to ourselves. 
See, we want everything to be eventually and actually about us. Another way of phrasing that is that we actually want to be God. We want to be the one who deserves to have everything revolve around us. And the Lord's Prayer quickly reminds us. It turns our our heads from looking down, from looking inward, from looking at ourselves, to looking upward towards God. It turns our attention away from ourselves and the way that we want to do things, upward to the way that God calls us to do things. And it sort of uses the three categories of kingdom, power, and glory to do that. And I want to sort of think through those together as we look at this. When we think about the kingdom, we talked about this a good bit before. In the Lord's Prayer, uh, it says, uh, may your kingdom come. And we talked a good bit about the kingdom of God, what God is doing here on earth. But so many of us are quick to try to build our own kingdom. Think about the way that you diligently curate your LinkedIn and Instagram profiles. Hoping one day to achieve that great kingdom monument of influencer. Now maybe you're not going to be a big influencer. Maybe you're not going to have millions of followers. But people will know you. You'll get LinkedIn invitations from CEOs. You'll get Instagram follow requests from important people. You want to sort of build your brand. Now maybe you're not, maybe you're not like that. That's, that's simple. But, but think about the way that you're unable to set aside your work. You know, yesterday I was at the, the soccer game uh, with my kids, and my kids play soccer at the Y, and, and I love soccer at the Y because it's sort of the absolute cross-section of St. Petersburg. You have some folks um, who, are, who are not very wealthy at all, and you have some very, very wealthy people whose kids are all playing soccer together, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful, and yesterday there were two dads who were on their Apple AirPods just a doing business on the sidelines of their kids' soccer game. And my self-righteousness obviously rose up inside of me like, can't you get off of your, can't you get off of your business phone as I'm playing my bubble popper half paying attention to my kids' game? Look at this guy. This guy is just, you know, he's so important as I try to fill in the crossword that I'm playing on my phone. I'm quick, I'm quick to be judgmental of others, but what's underneath that impulse to take that phone call on Saturday? What's underneath your impulse this afternoon to open up that email box and get a jump on this week's email? What is that that makes us do that? We're trying to build our kingdom. You know, if I if I if I'm show the boss that I'm willing to go the extra mile, willing to to respond to emails on Sunday. Guess what? Oh, my boss will know. My boss will know that I care and that I'm a hard worker, and that when promotions come around, I'm the one who deserves it. This inability to take a day off, to have what the Bible calls a Sabbath day, is driven by our impulse to build our own kingdom. Or maybe that's not so much your speed. Maybe it's you're a mom. 
And you want to make sure all the other moms know that you have it all together, that you know how to do the work-life balance, that your kids are the first to read, that your kids are the first to count to 20, that your kids are the fill-in-the-blank with your mom achievement. And you want to make sure that it's well known that you are the good mom, that your kids are the good kids, that your kingdom of children is best. Or maybe, maybe you're a church planter and you want to say so desperately that you are working to build God's church when in reality you're working to build your own ego. Oh. Uh-oh. I don't know if that was supposed to be in there. But it's even true for those of us who are Christians. We can do so many things that we say, this is in the name of Jesus. This is for God. When in reality, we are doing it for the applause of others. We are doing it so other people will notice. So other people will say, wow, look at that person. That that person's a good Christian. If we are doing things for the applause of others, then we're just building our own brand and painting over it with religious paint. But it's the same thing. You see, we want our work to be valuable. And instead of rooting that value in God's kingdom, what we do is we root the value of our work and say, the value of my work is that it makes me more valuable. I am meaningful because of what I do at work. And Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not about your kingdom. It's not about your achievements. And it's not about what you can do. Ultimately, it's about what I am doing. And not only is it not about our kingdom, but it's not about our power. You see, we reach and try to gain power in so many ways. We, we try to make sure that the people that we like get elected so that we can achieve political power. We try so hard to make sure that we have more money so that we have economic power. We try to culture ourselves and have the right friendships so we have social power. We spend time meditating and improving ourselves so that we achieve self-empowerment. Which is an interesting two-edged sword. Because on the one hand, self-empowerment is important. Because it's a way that many people have found their voice and have found confidence that they lack. But most of the time, many times, Self-empowerment is an excuse to extend our selfishness outside of ourselves. It's a way that we turn the focus again to us and away from God. See, both kingdom and power both point us to the way that we have taken Christianity of the Bible and we've clothed it with the sort of consumer mentality of our day. How many times in our lives do we want to make everything that God says about us? It's election season. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you live in Florida and your mailbox is absolutely chocked full 
with color, glossy, thick papered advertisements for people. A lot of them. Every day. My children were watching YouTube and the ads that they were being served on their kids' toy unboxing channels were ads for a state representative. Now, I don't know why they think that that is a good ad serve. I don't know why Google assumed that my kids are going to come tell me to come vote for so-and-so because they saw it on the unboxing channel, but it was there. And one of the ways that we turn the attention and the way that we become consumers is that we try to just take whatever political party we favor and play them up and say, this is the people that God wants. And we speak authoritatively as if God has told us a list of names. Instead of having to do the hard, nuanced work of looking at more than just one thing or another, the hard work of applying the whole counsel of God to difficult and tumultuous decisions, we stop, we just paint over and say that all the people that look and act like us, those are the good guys, and here's the Bible verses to prove it. And all we're doing is turning Christianity into another consumable product. We do this in the way that we find churches. What's the most common word that people use when they are looking for a new church? They say that they are church shopping, which is colossally messed up. Not the idea that you would look for a church, but the idea that this language, that church should be about me, because, because what is what is that communicating? Well, let's think about this. If I go and I'm gym shopping, what am I doing? I'm looking for the gym. Well, this is a bad example for me, right? But theoretically, I'm looking for a gym that's going to give me the best deal. I'm looking for the gym that's going to have the best terms. And they say, oh, if you sign up, it's only $10 a month. And I say, I like $10 a month. That's kind of like Netflix. And I sign up. And then what happens when the company turns around and says, your one year is up and now it's $20 a month? What do I do? I move on to the next gym that's got fancy neon. And I say, ah, they'll give me $10 a month. And I will quickly move on. Why? Because that relationship is all about Me. I am the consumer. You must serve me. Think about it with your cable bill. What do you do every two years when your cable bill goes off of its initial contract? You flip-flop between the two companies, don't you? How often do we treat church and Jesus the same way? I'm going to go to this church as long as it is what's best for me and my family. And if it's hard... And if there's anything difficult, I will just pick up my ball and go home. I'll pick up my ball and go to the place that can give me the best consumer experience. Does this mean you should never leave a church? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the attitude behind it can't be the attitude of a consumer. And so not only does Jesus tell us to turn our eyes from building our own kingdom, not only does he tell us to stop trying to secure our own power for selfish reasons, but he also talks about our glory and the way that we want to bask in our own glory. Now, glory is not a word that we use very often. 
especially outside of the context of God. But I think a word that we do know, that we do understand, that we are aware of, is the word vanity. The idea of being vain. You're so vain, you probably think this sermon is about somebody else. (laughs) You're so vain, you think that this should be about them and not about me. See, vanity is this desire for others to think that you are impressive, to others to think that you are needing, that they need you. Think about how this works out with our friends. How far of a length will we go to prove that we are a valuable friend if that's what we want to keep? How often are our relationships driven by vanity? I wish I had a certain relationship. I wish my relationship looked and acted a certain way. Ultimately, that is about us. We want the glory of that friendship. We want the glory of that relationship. Why do you spend so much money and time on clothes and going to the gym? Is it because of vanity? Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you're a good Christian. How much time do you spend making sure everybody else knows how good of a Christian you are? Which is again, just painting over the same sort of sinfulness with a nice moral veneer. You see, all of these things point to this idea that you and I are constantly seeking to build our kingdom, to secure our power, and to bask in our own glory. And this is something that is absolutely endemic to our culture. It is born and bred into us from the youngest age. But there's a tension here. Because we're not made to hold that sort of power. You're not made to run that sort of kingdom, and you're not made to hold that sort of glory. And so why our culture pushes us to achieve these things, it also has this sense that those things are futile. You think of of characters in in TV like, like Cersei Lannister and Frank Underwood. These characters that have achieved all of these things of, of kingdom and power and glory. But what did it cost them along the way? It cost them everything. So they are lonely, isolated, powerful, and empty. So our culture has this struggle that it says, yes, go get your power. Yes, bask in your glory. Yes, build your kingdom. But when it cracks, what then? When you inevitably can't hold on to that power, what do you do then? When your kingdom crumbles around your ears, what now? You see, all of these things point us to the fact that we look at the kingdom, the power, and the glory all around us in opposite ways. Because Jesus' kingdom was not a kingdom 
of brute force. Throughout the New Testament, the comparison that's being made, especially in the book of Matthew and the writings of Paul, is the comparison between Jesus and Caesar, between the peace of Augustus and the peace of Jesus. And how did Caesar Augustus achieve this peace? He achieved it through brute force. As long as you bought into the myth of the Roman Empire, the myth of Caesar as the great peacemaker, everything in your life would be fine. So long as you didn't threaten the empire. It was a peace that was enforced by brute force. And Jesus comes along and says, my kingdom isn't like that. My kingdom is not a kingdom like this world. My kingdom, instead of being brute force, Force is full of grace and truth. Full of grace towards your enemies. Of truth with your friends. My power is not the power of coercion and of strength, but of self-sacrifice. My glory is not the victory march through the streets of Rome but rather the broken march to Calvary. See, when we think about the kingdom, the power, and the glory of Jesus, our hearts should be pointed ultimately to the cross of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, in the Gospel of John, does this specifically. Every time we see the word glory in that book, it is pointing us ahead to the cross. And so as we think about the kingdom and the power and the glory of Jesus, ultimately, we are reminded of His cross. Where His kingdom was initiated. Where His power was shown, not in how His enemies were conquered, but rather in the way that He was sacrificing Himself. And where His glory was shown, not in a small way, but in a large way, through loving His enemies. And so we as Christians come to this, and as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we should be reminded again of our need for Jesus, of our need for His cross, of the ways that we are constantly seeking our kingdom. We're constantly securing our power, constantly looking at His glory. But when we repent... When we begin to give this up, when we begin to trust in Jesus and place our faith in Him, something happens. All of a sudden, instead of building our kingdom, we're able to truly serve others. Because it doesn't matter what position I have, it matters if I can serve others. Instead of securing my own power, I can give up my power in order to love others. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes us because instead of having to work and strive and worry and be anxious about, are others going to love me? Am I going to be anxious? I can turn from seeking my own glory to giving glory to the only one who's worthy to hold it. You see, Jesus is the only one who's worthy to hold the kingdom. Jesus is the only one who is truly powerful. Jesus is the one who is truly glorious. May we see that in our lives and hearts this week.